to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, beginning in verse 26, is where we'll be today. Uh, we're going to look at today misplaced confidence. Misplaced confidence. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, which I'm not a huge reader of Edgar Allan Poe, but uh, came across a quote from him this week. Edgar Allan Poe wrote, I have great faith in fools. My friends call it self-confidence. Um, let that sink in for just a little bit. Oftentimes, our great faith in fools is well-founded in our self-confidence. Um, I shared with the membership class this morning, um, I was in youth ministry for a long time, did student ministry for a lot of years. And uh, one particular trip we were on, a ski trip we were on, uh, we had skied all day and uh, we were exhausted at the end of the day. We had driven two hours to get there and uh, it was, you know, obviously a two hour drive back home. We got back on the bus that day and uh, and, and we got in and I got in the driver's seat and I was going to drive us home. And I started down the road and I'd been going down the road a little while. And one of my adult chaperones came to me from behind and said, I don't want to question you or anything, but I think we're going the wrong way. Well, I was tired. And I was in charge (laughs) and the pride welled up within me and I said, We are not going the wrong way. This is exactly the way we came in. This is exactly the way we're going out. I got this. With that, she turned and she went back to her seat, only to find out that later on, our two hour trip back home took us six hours because I was indeed going the wrong way. Um, This is what happens when we think more of ourselves than we should. Now, I want to see that. I want you to see it today in a very well-known example, a well-known biblical passage in the denial of Peter when Jesus is arrested. Let's look at this together. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray together. God, I pray that today you would be our teacher. God, would you open ears, minds and hearts to the truth of the gospel? Speak through me, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. I want to show you three things out of this text this morning. Three things. Here's the first. Number one, Jesus already knows. Jesus already knows. Well, what exactly did he know? The first thing he knows is he knows that they would all abandon him. He says to them, you will all fall away. This is right on the heels of sitting around the table or lying around the table as they did in that day. And him dropping the bomb in the middle of that celebration that one would betray him, that one would sell him out. And they all wondered who that one was. And they probably all thought, 
even though they thought maybe it's me. I hope it's not me. But at least they had the assurance of knowing that one out of 12, I've got a pretty good shot. But now he comes here as they go out from there and they go to the Mount, Mount of Olives. He says to them, you're all going to flee. You're all going to scatter. Jesus knows this. It's exactly what happened. These men who had been chosen by him, invited into his life, had walked with him and seen him do and heard more from him, more than enough to know who he really was. These men who had been told repeatedly exactly what would happen. He had told them on more than one occasion that he was going to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and die and that he would be raised again. These rugged fishermen, these tax collectors, this zealot, these men who are manly in so many ways, all of them, when the sight of torches and the sight of steel entered into the garden, it will read about that in the next few weeks. They all ran like little girls. A few weeks ago, actually a couple of months, two, three months, probably ago, I was out in the backyard and most of you know that in this area we have coyotes. Uh, there's coyotes. In fact, we were driving home the other day, picked the kids up from school. We were coming in and there's a coyote in broad daylight just standing there in the field. We saw it. And uh, my, it just so happened a few months ago, we were out in the backyard and my sister with all of her kids, my nephews and my niece were all in. And we all were in the backyard. It was dark. I said, you know what? You know what's out here? And we were just playing. And I said, you know what we have back here in the woods? And they all got big wide eyes. And I said, I said what? I said, we got coyotes back here. And all the boys kind of puffed up their chest and said, no, you don't have any coyotes. And they, they just sort of, no. And I said, yeah, let, let's try to call them. And they said, can you really call them? I said, sure, let, let's try. And so I cut my hands to my mouth. And I did the very best coyote impersonation that I possibly could. Standing in my backyard, in, 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 you know, there at 211 Coggins Road. And I was, oh, you know, I was, and it's pro- I don't know what that is. Uh, I, I know if the donkey would have been up the street, he probably would have started braying at me, you know. But lo and behold, coyotes in the woods all of a sudden started calling back to me. And it wasn't probably 50 yards from where we were standing. And all of those brave little boys and my niece, Emma, bolted for the house. I look down and there's nobody except for I think Micaiah was still there and maybe Cole, the oldest, was still there hanging in with me. That's exactly the picture of what happens when Jesus is praying in the garden and the side of torches and steel and the Roman insignia comes flashing into the garden. They all run like little girls. Jesus knows it ahead of time. What else does he know? He knows that they would that he would suffer greatly. In fact, he says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knows exactly why he's going to Jerusalem. He knew he would suffer. He knew that he would be struck by God. He had already told them, Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man didn't come to be served. But he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus already knew. 
How does he know all of this? How does he know that they will scatter? How does he know that he will suffer? Well, one thing is he's God. Don't forget that. He's God. God is all knowing. God knows everything. But secondly, here in his humanity, he quotes the scriptures. He was so familiar with the word of God, him being the word of God. He was familiar with the word of God in that he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. In that verse, in Zechariah 13, seven, it says, awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. That's an idiom, meaning that he is equal to me in every way. God here saying, awake, O sword against my equal. Who is his equal? The son. The son is God in every way. Strike the shepherd, it says in Zechariah 13, 7, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus already knows. Still, he presses on. He presses on in spite of the fact that they will all run as cowards away from him. Despite all that he's done for them, despite all that he is going to achieve for them. They will all run. They will all scatter. They will abandon him. Yet he goes to the cross anyway. In spite of knowing that he will indeed suffer. And he will suffer greatly. And by the way, it was not the physical pain that drove him to the point of sweating drops of blood. It was the very thought of having the wrath of God placed on him. It was the very thought of having his father turn his back on him. And he did that for you and for me. He did that for them and he did that for us. Jesus went to the cross in the same way. Jesus knows all the times that you will also fail him. He knows all the times that you will abandon him. He knows all the times that you will run away from your namesake, from being called a Christian because you are afraid. He knows it all. Every single instance, if we're honest, if we're honest, we've all been in situations where we have we've ran away. Maybe there wasn't the flash of flame and steel. But maybe we were afraid all the same. And we didn't take the name. We didn't stand where we should have stood. We didn't speak where we should have spoke. Jesus knows every single time, not just as a blanket across all of humanity, but in your individual life, in my life. He knows it all. Now, that should cause us great fear and trepidation, shouldn't it? Except for the fact that he was going to the cross. Sometimes we're afraid that if we take the name of Christ and we stand too boldly with the name of Christ, if we speak too loudly with it, that we'll have to give up and we'll miss out on pleasures that this world has to offer. We're afraid that it might put us into an uncomfortable situation. 
We're afraid that we may suffer rejection or ridicule. And Jesus knows every single time. And yet he still went to the cross. He took our place. He died so that God would be made favorable towards you. He died to bring us into right relationship with him. Just as he looked to the word of God and he quoted Zechariah 13, 7, and he knew all of this. He knew that they would abandon him. He knew that he would suffer and he went anyway in the same way, dear Christian today. Saint of God, in the same way, you and I need to be so familiar with the word of God that we know what it says and that we would go regardless of what it will cost us. You see, here's what we know. We know that if we follow Christ, that we will suffer in this world. It should come as no surprise when you are ridiculed and rejected. But we also know that we are aliens and strangers in this world. That while he has gone to the cross and he has conquered sin and death. And he's now ascended back to the right hand of the father that one day he will also come again. And this world will not be our home. We will never live in a world of sin and death forever. So we should take the knowledge of whatever suffering may come our way and suffer gladly and say to God, God, thank you for counting me worthy to suffer for your name. Jesus knew he already knows. And secondly, in this passage, verse 28, the cross was not the end. The cross was not the end. It says in verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this is this is very familiar. Every time he had told them, I've got to go and I've got to suffer. I will be crucified. That's all they heard. But every time he also went on to tell them that he would be raised on the third day, but they never heard it. And it's as if here they don't hear it this time as well. And he says to them, but after I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. Now, that phrase there, Jesus is confident in the fact that the cross will not be the end. The grave will not be the end. He's confident that he will be raised from the dead. And that phrase there, when he says, I will go before you to Galilee, it does not mean simply that I'll get there before you. And when you get there, we'll all meet up. It's not used in the same way that we say, whoever gets to the restaurant first, go ahead and put our name in. Instead, what that little phrase means is, I will lead you. What Jesus is saying here is, after I am raised up, I'll still be your leader. I will, I will lead you to Galilee. See, the cross is not the end. The cross is really only the beginning. And don't hear me today say that salvation is the cross plus anything. I'm not saying that at all. The only way to God is Jesus. The only way to God is faith in his finished work. So don't hear me preaching works after this. 
But the reality is that the cross is meant to be the beginning of this life with him. And that we would grow up in him, that we would follow him, that he would lead us, that we would listen and follow him. He this is exactly what he did with them. He said, I'll lead you to Galilee. And later in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, beginning in verse seven, the Bible tells us, then go quickly. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus is a man of his word. Prior to even being arrested, he tells them that after they crucify me, I'm going to be raised from the dead and then I will lead you to Galilee. And we see that is exactly what happened. Jesus wanted to warn them that they would be scattered. But he also wanted to encourage and reassure them that he would also regather them. That good news. He would gather them once again. And even though he knew they would abandon him, he knew they would run. Their abandonment was not like the betrayal of Jesus or, or Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus because he was never one of his true disciples. But these men believed. These men were men of faith. And in moments of weakness and fear, they flee. And Jesus doesn't hold it against them permanently. Instead, he regathers them. Isn't that good news? That when we fail, when we make mistakes, Jesus doesn't just say, that's it. I'm through with you. I've had enough. But instead, he gathers us. He forgives us. Later on, we will hear him say to Peter, Peter, if you love me, then feed my sheep. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? One for each of the times that he betrays Jesus, offering forgiveness, full forgiveness and restoring him to the prominent place of leadership among the apostles. And he becomes the voice that leads Christianity into what we know now as the church era. Jesus wants to assure them that he will gather them once again when he gathered them. There in Matthew 28, what does he tell them? He tells them, all authority has been given to me. Now I say to you, go. Go and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. See, this is the instruction. It's not... It's, it's not come by faith of Jesus, get dunked in some water, and then sit down for the rest of your life. It is come to Jesus by faith. Demonstrate that to the watching world by being baptized, by identifying with him through death, burial, and resurrection. And then get up and in the power.
power, in the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Serve Him. Obey Him. Join His mission. Can I say something to you? And I realize that I say this also with myself in the crosshairs. Some of you need to grow up. We need to grow up. We've, we've relegated Christianity to nothing more than a place, a gathering. We live our lives however we want, which is what cast Adam and Eve and the entire human race into the predicament of sin and death. We live that way all through the week and then we come in here and we complain about how things are not our way. We need to grow up. It's what first Peter chapter two, verses one through five says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put it away. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The reason that some of you never seem to grow is because you have never tasted that the Lord is good. You are lost in your sin. At some point, you may have had an emotional experience. You may have been pressured or pushed by a parent or a friend. But you have never, you've never humbly admitted who you are in light of who he is. And come before him and thrown yourself on his mercy and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Today, if you're sitting there saying, I can't seem to grow, I grit my teeth and I want to grow, but I just never seem to grow. You need to start with this question of asking yourself, am I really a believer? Am I truly saved? In Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 13 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This is exactly what we are trying to do to do through the disciples making disciples class on Sunday mornings. We are attempting to teach believers what it is to be teachers of others. The mandate to be a teacher here, when when the writer of Hebrews says, you should by now all be teachers. We skip over that sometimes and say, but wait, teaching is not my gift. I'm not called to be a teacher. And I would beg to differ. You are called to be a teacher. You may not be called to be a teacher who stands in front of a small group. But every single believer is called to make 
disciples. To teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. For some of you, the reason you're not growing is because you've never tasted that the Lord is good. Others of you, the reason that you're not growing is because you've never had someone to come alongside of you and to disciple and train and teach you. And you've not done it intentionally, but you've just not had anyone do that. There's a whole room full of people that have never been intentionally discipled. And what we need is for a few people to step up and to say, you know what, that's the mandate on my life. And God, if you would use me, God, would you put one person or two people or three in my life that I could just pour into and I could show them some some truth in Scripture and show them what it means to follow after Christ. The culture of this church will change as that begins to happen. Because that is where we are missing the mark in in obeying God. We've hired staff to do things. We've hired the preacher. That's what we pay him for, right? I shouldn't have to disciple any anybody. I, he gets paid for that. He is our teacher, right? No. We are all called to be teachers. Jesus wants them to know that the cross is not the end. It is only the beginning. He will regather them and he will lead them. And we'll see that as we continue to go through. Third point I want to make to you today is this. Self-confidence is the enemy of the gospel. Self-confidence is the enemy of the gospel. And this is probably the main point of the passage. That's why I titled the sermon Misplaced Confidence. That's why I started with that illustration of me driving four hours out of the way. That's why I quoted Edgar Allan Poe. Self-confidence is the enemy of the gospel. Verses 29 through 31. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I mean, isn't that arrogant? How would you like to have been one of the other 11? He's standing there with all of them. He looks at Jesus and says, these guys probably will, Jesus. I mean, you're probably right about them, but I'm not falling away. If you were one of the 11, what would you have wanted to do? I mean, a lot of times you'd probably wanted to punch Peter right between the eyes, you know. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, he argues with Jesus. He raises his voice. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. By this time, they're all embarrassed that Peter and Jesus has called them out. So they all agree. Same for us. We'll, we'll, we'll do the same thing. We will not deny you, Jesus. You think about the arrogance here. I mean, so audacious of Peter to argue with Jesus. And this is not the first time. Remember when Jesus told him what he was going to do, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and he would be crucified? Remember the story? Peter pulls him to the side and says, "Uh, Jesus, you know, you're going to lead these other guys astray. I mean, I'm mature and I understand, but Jesus, this is not, this can't happen. Jesus, you're wrong in this. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God 
but of the devil. You would have thought that after that stern rebuke, that he would have learned his lesson. But then again, pride is not something that is so easily shaken, is it? Pride seems to infect every single part of who we are. Pride is the very sin that caused the devil to become the devil. Satan was an angel created to somehow facilitate the worship directed toward God. He became prideful and wanted to steal some of that for himself. And it was pride that caused him to be expelled from the presence of God. Passages like Isaiah 66, verse two, they simply frustrate us. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That sounds great. God looks to those people who are humble and contrite. But you ever try to be humble and contrite? I'm going to be humble today. Then that person at work decided that this was the week that they were going to quit smoking. Not drink any coffee. They come in and they are on every last nerve that you have. And you're trying with all your might to be humble and contrite. God, would you look at me? I'm trying to be humble and contrite. And all we wind up doing is saying, God, would you look at me? How do we do this? This simply frustrates us. Pride, it seems like its spiny roots just seem to go down into every corner of who we are. They twist and tangle around so much of our lives. The world loves phrases like, God helps those who help themselves. But James 4, 6 contradicts it when it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to read you a story from C.J. Mahaney. It's a lengthy story, but I want to read it to you. Um, Number one, because it's very pertinent to what I'm trying to say. And number two, I enjoy being read to. And I don't know if you do as well, but I kind of like that. So C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Humility, True Greatness, I would recommend that book to you. Humility, True Greatness. He defines humility as humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. He he shares this story. He says, a while back, someone informed me that my car's rear left tire, or was it the rear right, was low on air. Now, in fact, I had no idea how to put air in a car tire, really. So I turned to a friend, a close friend, I'll have you know, and asked for his help. In such a moment, the godly and servant-hearted response from a friend would be to cheerfully answer, yes, let me help you. Instead, my good friend exclaimed, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. You don't know how to put air in a tire. On and on like this, he went until he faced me squarely and added, you, my friend, are a moron. My friend was merely having fun at my expense. But the truth of the matter is that on a previous occasion, I had actually tried on my own to put air in my car's tire. As I knelt to place the air hose on the stem or whatever that little deal is called, where you attach the hose to the tire, the extremely loud noise that erupted was an intimidating 
Then a loud ringing started. Ding, ding, ding. I was suddenly consumed by an intense fear that my tire was only seconds from blowing up. It's going to explode, I told myself, and you're going to die. And at your funeral, all your friends, while wiping away tears in the midst of their mourning, will be shaking their heads and saying to themselves, what an idiot. I'm convinced I'm convinced that the sum effect of my attempt that day was only to let out more air than I put in. And as I drove away from the station with a badly underinflated tire, I could almost hear the faint sound of the station attendant's laughter following me home. Now, you might assume that in a normal human being, such ineptness couldn't possibly coexist with any significant measure of pride. Someone as unskilled as I am would naturally be humble, right? However, let me assure you beyond doubt that both incompetence and pride are very evident in my life. Let me illustrate with another story. One day, my daughter informed me that our car was making a strange noise. So I went out to investigate. She tried to prepare me, but in no way did I anticipate the violent shrieking that assaulted my ears upon starting the car. I immediately turned off the engine. In such a moment, wisdom demands one course of action only. Get out of the car, walk back into the house and call a trustworthy auto repair service. That would have been the appropriate and prudent response. Instead, I followed the arrogant male instinct, which requires at bare minimum that the male lift the hood and stare intently at the engine. After all, neighbors might be watching and we want to at least give them the appearance that we have some mechanical knowledge. But given my personal history, what groundless self-assurance could possibly motivate me to lift the hood to examine my engine? The only thing I actually know how to do is check whether the container for window washer fluid needs refilling. So I checked that with great authority, and it was more than half full. Then I shut the hood, also with great authority, and proud fool that I am, got back into the car and turned the ignition once more. As if my having merely stared at the engine was sufficient to repair it. As if the broken parts were now calling to one another, he's seen us, get back together, quick. Yet as I turned the key again, the same violent shriek issued forth. Only at this point did I finally go back in the house to do what I should have done earlier. I telephoned the repair shop to notify them of my car's condition, fully ready to pass along to them my firm conviction that the problem was not the window washer fluid container. All of us are like that, aren't we? C.J. Mahaney, in writing this book, he makes the statement up front that to write a book on humility makes you proud. It disqualifies you. And so he writes the disclaimer and he says that I want you to know up front that I am not a humble man, but I am a proud man trying to grow in humility by the grace of God. And that's all of us. That's Peter that day. That's CJ. That's me. That's you. All of us need to grow in humility. We are prideful. And we must grow in humility. The answer is to be honest about ourselves. The answer is to be honest about ourselves in light of who God is. CJ goes on to define pride as 
sinful human beings aspiring to the status and position of God and refusing to acknowledge their dependence upon him. I don't know if you've ever thought about pride that way, but when we are prideful, we are finding something in ourselves that really only belongs to God. There's nothing in us that is worthy of any praise. Admitting who we are in light of who he is, is a beginning to growing in humility. Instead of pretending that we have it all together so that we can impress one another. We must be honest. We should acknowledge that only God has it all together, that we need him. And here's the point that we need him, not just in the beginning. We need him not just to come to God. We don't simply need Jesus at the beginning and then say, God, okay, I got it from here. Which is what a lot of us do. We come by faith and we're quick and proud to say that we're coming by faith. But then we say we'll live by our own strength. And the gospel is the message of the gospel. And I think what Jesus was going to teach them in this moment, particularly to Peter, is that Peter, you don't just need me to go to the cross for you. You need me to come out of the grave and to lead you from that point forward. Today, I would tell you that Jesus already knows. He already knows all of your failures. He already knows all of your shortcomings. He knows it all. He knows what you have done. He knows what you are doing. He knows what you will do. And all of your sins, all of your sins were future sins. He knew about all of those and he still went to the cross. He already knows. But he also wants you to hear today that the cross is not the end. He wants you to come through the cross by the way of the cross. He wants you to come to him by faith. It's the only way you'll come to God. But he wants you to grow up in him as well. He wants you to depend on him as much for the living out of the gospel as for the coming in of the gospel. And I would warn you today, and his warnings are full of mercy and grace. The self-confidence will rear its, uh, its ugly head in your life. And it will fight against the simplicity of resting in Christ. See, there's this tension in Scripture. There's a reality in Scripture that says that Jesus has done it all. But now that he's done it all, we are also to work toward our sanctification as he also works in us. And we sometimes tend to get so gung-ho and eager for that that we leave him behind. Don't misplace your confidence in yourself, in church attendance, in your parents or grandparents. Your confidence, the only place that it will be well-founded is in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, I pray that in the close of this sermon, God, I pray that you would indeed take the message and God apply it. 
God, would you open hearts? Would you open minds? God, would you call people to yourself? Would bring them to yourself for salvation? God, bring them to yourself, God, to grow in you. To have the image of God recreated in them over the course of their lives. Lord, help us to trust in you, to rest in you every single day as we strive to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.